What is the role of storytelling in addressing the opioid crisis? On March 11, 2019, Vermont Public Radio hosted a gathering at the Turning Point Center in downtown Burlington to talk through that question with the team behind My Heart Still Beats, a project of Writers for Recovery and Vermont Public Radio. I'm Angela Evansy, VPR's Managing Editor for Podcasts. If you're just discovering My Heart Still Beats, we'd suggest you go back and listen to the original six episodes. Some of the conversation in this recording will make more sense if you've heard the series. You can find the whole thing at vpr.org slash podcasts. Now let's get to the event. It was an intimate conversation between the producers of My Heart Still Beats and the people who shared their stories for the series, and a live audience. We kick things off with producers Bess O'Brien and Gary Miller. This recording contains some profanity, and it's been edited for clarity and brevity. Here's Bess O'Brien. Gary and I run something called Writers for Recovery, which is has been going on now into its fifth year, I think. Yes. And it's essentially um, exactly what it is, which is we go into uh, places like the Turning Points, uh, correctional facilities. We work at Woodside Juvenile Re- Rehabilitation Center. I'm working right now at the Lund Center. And we run a series of workshops with people in recovery, and we get them to do seven-minute writing prompts. And so we've been doing that for five years And uh, we got this idea to um, sort of go beyond that and talk to some of the folks who have been in our Writers for Recovery workshops and other folks that we have met along the the way that we thought would make wonderful portraits of folks who have been affected by addiction and who are either moving into recovery or who have had people going through recovery. So that's really the collaboration that – we came up with, and we're very excited to bring the stories of people to the VPR audience and across the state. So um, I'm going to start. Should we just go down the line and yeah, with sure. you, Gary, if you want to say anything else? So hi, I'm Gary Miller, and I'm the creative director of Writers for Recovery. Um, what that means is that I'm the person who does um, leads uh, the majority of the workshops that happen all around the state. Um, and as best said, I've been doing this now for coming into five years, and it's been nothing short of fantastic to go all around the state and meet some of the most incredible people, including these people, also some people here in the in the audience tonight, um, and just give them a chance to tell their stories. And we really appreciate the opportunity to um, to use the podcast medium to get the, those stories out to an even bigger audience than we ever could have imagined. So thank you. Um, and so now we're going to just introduce some of the folks who are in the episode. Do you want to enter? We'll go down just the say, line. Just you say your name and um, maybe where you're from. I'm Mark Legrand, and I live in Montpelier, Vermont. I'm Liz McDougall, and I live in Barrie, Vermont. I'm Mike Lusher, and I live in Newport, Vermont. I'm Abby Holden, and I live in Chester, Vermont. I'm Sally Greeno, and I live in St. Albans, Vermont. Okay, Great. So everybody here between Gary and me has been on a podcast and has been featured in a podcast. We also have a special guest in the audience, Gary. Javid, do you want to – are you mic'd up now? No. You're not. Um, can we get a mic for Javid? I'm Javid Mashkuri. I'm an emergency medicine physician at Central Vermont Medical Center. I work with Liz. <laughs> okay. So I think that's our introduction. So um, do we want to hear the podcast medley? I think the hardest thing now is that uh, is the judgment that comes with being an addict and how everybody assumes once they know it about you that it's just a matter of time before it happens again. And 
most of these drugs completely rewire your brain. Like I'm never going to feel the same amount of joy that I did the first time I did heroin. That is a scientific chemical fact. My brain cannot do it the same way. So it's reminding myself that I'm still capable of feeling happy and coping with difficult things and dealing with my life and being an adult without the use of drugs. So I have a lot of tattoos and two of my tattoos are serotonin and dopamine. And that's kind of my reminder to myself that almost every drug out there or substance that people use to alter their brain, your brain already makes it. So that's just my reminder to myself that everything I'm looking for is already in my head. Tyler didn't really say much about, you know, like the different stuff that went on at school. You ask him, you know, how was school? Oh, good. Out the door. So, so he never elaborated. It, it, it's almost like he just let it slide. That was on the outside, but I think it ate away at him on the inside. When Tyler was in high school, that, that problem child, X on his back, followed him all the way up through and, that really defined who he was as an adult. If I went to squash my intuition, I would have kicked ass in that school a lot longer. It took me until Tyler was in ninth grade before I started like stepping up and saying, you know what, this ain't right. He had nine years plus kindergarten, so ten years before I finally found my big girl fucking panties and got into that school and did something. And psychologically, when you're told over and over, you know... Your child's a problem child. He's bad, he's bad, he's bad, he's bad. So you believe your kid's bad. Find a support group. I get together with a group of parents every Monday night. And, and one of our guidelines is that nobody tells anybody what to do. We cannot tell you what to do. We can tell you our experience. It seems to be very effective. Because the nights are long. Her train of pain keeps rolling on. Tell her. Sick people respond to love. It's a disease, and they have a disease. One thing I noticed was touch. You know, put your hand on their shoulder. It's amazing. Because when's the last time you did that? Because you're so scared that they're going to die. That's okay. I would, that's a normal response to protect yourself. But they need that touch. They need to know that you love them. They love you. With your eyes, if love finds you, it never dies. At first, you know, I just volunteered. Uh, I went to some groups. Brandon, you know, said, you really should volunteer, and you've got a good story. You need to tell your story, and you know what? I, I want to send you to get your recovery coaching certificate. So I did it, and I started working, and answering phones, um, checking people in and out, uh, meeting and greeting people. And then finally, Brandon made me the recovery coach coordinator. It's helped my recovery, and I've never been happier in my life. And what do you say to someone that would say you don't deserve to be forgiven, that you should just be locked in and throw, throw away the key? In some aspects, you might be right. But then again, why would I be sitting there for $75,000 a year when I can be out here helping people to not let it happen to them? You've got to look at both sides of the situation. Yeah, you're right. I probably do deserve to be in jail the rest of my life. Or, you know, I do deserve to give my life for hers. But since I can't, let's save somebody else's life. 
So um, having any role at all and being able to see somebody that's living a miserable life start to come out of it and start to be happy and start to have a reason to live and start to smile because we meet with these people regularly afterwards. We talk to them every day and to be able to see them go from what they were like when you saw them in the ER to even just a few weeks later, almost a completely different person and being able to do that over and over and over again. It really, um, it makes my life more worth living. I think in the past, people would say, look, people don't want to talk about this. They're not going to tell you truthfully what they're doing, how they're doing it. And the truth is people want to talk about this stuff. If you give them the right forum and time to do it, which in the ED you have time, you're waiting for an x-ray to get done or you're waiting for blood results. And quite often they go, I can't believe you guys want to do this and actually help us. And we're like, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, that is what we want to do. You know, in, a, in an obituary about of somebody who's died with cancer, um, you'll talk about their struggle with that disease and people can feel empathy for that. And we need to start feeling empathy for people who have this other disease. I know my family felt very alone a lot of the time. It's odd that there's an epidemic and this is happening to millions of people and that you still feel so isolated, but that's the case. We're not alone. People who have this addiction and people who love people who have this addiction, we're not alone. And I think our combined voices are very, very powerful. Anybody who hasn't listened to all of them, you should go listen to all of them. Do it over a period of time. And and do it alone. <laughs> <laughs> With a Kleenex. Yeah, Kleenex a box. <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask a question. Everybody can answer it. Then Gary's going to ask a question. Everybody can answer it. And then we'll open it up to um, the group. So um, my first question is, you know, I, I get asked all the time because I've made a lot of movies about a lot of tough tough issues in Vermont, but I get asked a lot, you know, how did you get people to talk about these things? Like, how did you get them to open up? Um, and I think people are sort of mystified by that, you know, like how, because, you know, these are really intense things that you guys are, are talking about. So I guess my question to you is, why did you decide to do this podcast series and tell your story? And why is storytelling important as far as, um, raising consciousness around addiction and recovery and this epidemic that we're going through. Sally? Okay. To start um, this, telling the stories, um, when I met Gary, I was in a class, and he was doing Writers for Recovery. Um, and, and the story that you end up telling is it's very healing, Um on mine, I was just so totally, totally mad at, to the point of actually hating a person. And I'll never forget that story. It, it, I started to heal. You know, I started to forgive her. Um, and, and that helped me through some pretty difficult times. Um, so so telling your story is very important. Um and the reason that I did this podcast, um, 
I, I got a push, a push from above. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, Bess is so good at bringing Tyler to me. I, I have no idea how she does it, but she does. Um, it, it's almost like when I need, I need something in my life. Here comes Bess. <laughs> um, and, and she's helped me a lot on the road to um, healing. You know, in my own recovery from the death of my son. I think for me there was two reasons, really. The first was that um, I really feel like when I people look at me, they don't see what they think of as a stereotypical addict uh, because I came from a very loving family. I had a father who was a police officer, so you would think that everything would have steered me in the opposite direction. Um, but... I wanted people to understand that this is not a disease that has one face and that this is not something that will never affect you because it affects everyone. And the second piece of it for me was that um, when I met Gary, I was very early in mourning and uh, it had only been about three months since I lost my partner and I, Writers for Recovery was actually introduced to me by my therapist who literally cut it out of the paper and brought it to our session and was like, I think you need to do this. And I don't think that I would have healed the same way um, if I hadn't been going and had this. We had a really great group where I met Gary in Springfield where we had a pretty core group of us that came to every session. And it was we literally just got together and wrote and cried for a couple hours at a time every week. And I... It was for him. It was for my partner, Zach, and this was my memory for him that his death mattered. Great. Thank you. Mike? Um, I guess for me to do the um, podcast, it was was easy because I've had to be able to tell my story quite often since, uh, you know, uh, being in jail and um, going out to schools from there and talking, you know, and telling my story. To after doing that, receiving a lot of feedback, um, and I guess just after enough people telling me that I had something to say that was helping, that would help, you know, eventually I just knew, well, then that's my role. That's what I need to do. So um, definitely the feedback of and people supporting me and telling me that my story helped them. So thanks. Um, I did it because I wanted to be famous. <laughs> well, you've gotten there, and you've got the hair to show it. <laughs> no, um, you know, I really hate the whole shame, stigma, crap that's associated with addiction. And I feel like the more that people are open about their stories, whether it's they were themselves addicted or someone they loved, the more people realize, oh, wait, you know, this is everybody. So it's a lot harder to to judge and, and demonize when you realize that it's not, you know, the stereotypical addict that you were picturing in your mind. And um, I really want to try to change perspectives. And I think if we all keep sharing our stories, that's how that's going to happen. Mark? Well, I'm already a songwriter and a storyteller, and I've been doing it for over three decades for my own recovery. So I sort of just started that way. 
And, uh, and I wanted to be famous, too. But uh, <laughs> at least I think you I You've got to work on the hair. <laughs> <laughs> got to color your hair at least purple. He's getting uh, a thumbs up from his wife back there, too. Right. So this could happen. This could happen. So it was a natural fit because I write about, about my experiences, and my experiences have been around addiction. I come from uh, multi-generational addiction and uh and it shows up in in everywhere and everything and you know there's a lot of things you can be addicted to there are things that have much more dire consequences but i see the entire society's addicted and i'm happy to shame anybody about their social media um <laughs> which i'm working on that you know i shouldn't be doing that that's not cool but um <laughs> addicts i mean this whole whole society i mean so I'd love if somebody would give me 60 seconds of attention in this society. That's, I'll do almost anything for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gary, your chance to ask yeah, a question. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in, in, you know, four full years of doing Writers for Recovery is a lot of times people will write their stories down um, and then read them out loud. And it's almost... It's not exactly, but it's somewhat like they're hearing that story in a different way or for a new time. And I'm, I'm just wondering, and you, you, I don't necessarily, maybe it didn't affect all of you in that way, but it, I was wondering what it was like to hear the podcast yourself telling your own story for the first time. Anybody? Yeah, let's just we don't, go down we don't have to go in <laughs> row if we don't want. But. Well, I see my boyfriend smirking at me because he knows that I went home. uh, I got lucky in the fact that I was number one because I didn't want to wait. And uh, I was on my way home from class uh, at exactly the time that it was going to be playing on the radio. So I listened to it on the radio and sobbed the whole way home. And then I went home and listened to it probably four more times in a row, just kind of processing that that was really me and that... I would that I I wanted to make sure that I sounded educated <laughs> and <laughs> and like I made sense to other people who don't know me, so I was relieved that I did. <laughs> um, but it was also just very I the feedback was so instant. I got home and had a message from somebody being like, I just heard you on the radio. And it happened to be somebody that was um, my coach when I was in early recovery myself. So it was nice to see that she got to hear kind of where I ended up. Awesome. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? When I listened to mine, um, I remember thinking uh, it's so deep and there's so much you could say. Is it enough to actually make people understand? And I just want to follow up with that because I got a message the day after yours played from a friend of mine who had a kid um, the same age as mine who went through a lot of the same things that Tyler went through when he was a little kid. Um, Real challenges in school, the X on the back, you know, being kicked out of school back and forth, da-da-da. And she essentially just emailed and she said, oh, my God, listening to Sally's piece it was just like but for the grace of god you know her her kid is still around thank god but you know she was so touched by there are so many parents who go through a lot of the same things that you went through sally and um it really moved her and made her think about her own son and what she went through so and and i think more more on the society end you know there's so much conditioning going on 
with that is that little piece of each each one of our podcasts is that enough for society to realize I'm a part of this problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I am driving this conditioning. You know, I am killing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Anybody else want to talk about that? What it felt like listening to your story or um, any insights? I also got pretty teary-eyed. Um, partially just because I was so excited, you know, to hear that it was actually happening and hear all these people participating and, you know, that other people would hear it and hopefully care. <laughs> um, and then the feedback was the way more exciting part than hearing it myself, hearing how many people were saying that it changed their perspective and, um, you know, just really, really positive feedback that I wasn't expecting, you know, from way more people than I was expecting which was obviously the goal, but it was really exciting <laughs> for it to actually happen. I think that um, the power of the spiritual healing of this is is so intense that I cried a lot, too, when I first heard it. Um, I was very grateful for the editors who made me sound quite a bit smarter than I think I actually <laughs> I am. You know, <laughs> Even though I, I think highly of myself, but they did do a really good job of getting those, those thoughts. That's a lot of work, so... So I was impressed with the art that went into that. You know, that first there's, you know, telling the story, but then there's a whole other piece of creativity and art that went into, you know, putting that together. Not unlike uh, mixing an album or, or editing a movie. It's, and so I was thrilled, really thrilled, and, and honored and grateful and humbled about it. Uh, just, just to reflect a little bit on that, yeah, I, I really did appreciate the... Um, the kind of like helping a story go along with Gary and his words. Um, you know, uh, I always want to make sure I'm being um, being looked at serious too because I get kind of like self-conscious with the way I speak and everything. I mean, my fiance says it defines me, but <laughs> that's how everyone knows it's me. But um, no, I just want to make sure like I'm getting the right words out and and saying the right things that can stick because... You know, I I love what I do only because I know it can help other people. You know what I mean? Um, and it, it's it, recovery is a two way street. It, it helps us just as much as it well, me. Excuse me. It helps me just as much as it does others. And um, so I just uh, I, it was it was cool listening to myself and hearing the uh, people feedback that it did help. And but I definitely liked the way that um, Gary kind of like brought brought it more to life. I would say. I just wanted to just loop in Dr. Mershkuri too. Do you did you want to weigh in on on? Um, I know it felt kind of weird to me actually to ask you know you gee could I come into your emergency room and do a podcast because I know there's you know there's issues of privacy and issues of you know you're a really busy guy and and things like that. So I was wondering you know what what was your decision process beside you know behind that, wanting that's to how we put you in the back room. What? Yeah, I know. He's he has this. He has a fortress of solitude, like Superman, like way in the back, back there. No one ever can see him. Uh, but all. But yeah. So what? What was the, What was your reason for participating? And what was the? I met Gary what four or five years ago. I think it was very early in the morning. It's a lonely yeah. place, and sometimes as the doc, you got nothing to do. You want to talk to somebody. So Gary had a pad, and he was writing stuff. And I was like, Are you taking notes about me? <laughs> and then he told me what he did, and I said, wow. And he, I said, well, you know, we have a group of 
medical providers and, and community people that are learning how to take care of addiction. And we were kind of new at it back then, but we were trying. And Gary said, I invited Gary to our meeting. We meet once a month. And Gary graciously came. And, and one day he dropped a book off at my office of writings. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. And he said, put this in the waiting room. And I never told him this, but I didn't. Uh-oh, that's all right. <laughs> I read the book myself, um, and I never got rid of it because there was tales of bravery, tragedy, humor, resilience, love, all those things. And I, was, I, I just couldn't believe it. And I said, man, this guy, he's on to something, but he's a little kooky, but I like him. <laughs> and then um, we started uh, – we started deciding that we, when the opioid problem got really bad, we said, hey, this is something we should be doing. We're open all the time, every day. We're the easiest place to get to for health care. Um, but there was tremendous judgment, stigma attached to all these things. And, and as you know, and I'm ashamed to say, medicine has not been nice to people that suffer from addiction. But it gave us a chance to actually recover ourselves and crawl out of that darkness and say, hey, wait a minute. We should be there like anybody else like someone with diabetes or heart disease. And when Gary asked me to do this, I was like, sure, if you want to talk. I thought it was kind of weird, and, but we did it. And, and I get to work with great people like Liz, and I'm going to put purple here and pink in the middle. Right? That's what we're going to go with. So I've met a lot of great people, made some good friends along the way, and I think, um, I think we're starting to do the right thing now. And I think hopefully we're going to start to see some benefits. People are going to live longer and be treated the right way. So thank you, Gary. Thank you. recovery is a two-way street. Awesome. Thank you. Do we want to now ask yeah. people? And, yeah, so anybody out there have a, a question for anyone up here? I don't, hi, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to say I was part of the first workshop that Gary and Bess facilitated. That's right. And uh, it was wonderful. It was supposed to be a 10-week class, and it ended up being three years. Yeah, it was three. <laughs> yeah, our planning went a little awry on that it one. It was I could, wonderful. I couldn't let I mean, you guys time. go because you were like my first group and yes we were yeah. very tight and um it was it was just um my the man i was with that i loved had just was addicted to oxycodone um 10 10 11 years ago before anyone was even concerned about it and yeah and he died uh, five years ago, and it was a great i mean and i'm a recovering alcoholic so it was a great way for me to um process my grief but i just think the work that you've done is valuable and i'm so grateful that society is consciously aware now of this addiction in a more serious manner and that pharmaceutical companies and the doctors are also responsible in thank my, you, Patty. In my Thanks opinion for being part of it nice to see you too thank you okay. right here Great. Um, I just want to say that I commend you all for being brave enough to come. And I mean, obviously, this went nationwide. That's huge. Um, And that's commendable. But I also want to say that I can relate to each and every one of you. And that's the thing about being in recovery. You may have lost somebody, but I've lost people. You know, I can't even begin to tell you the number. Like, you used to be able to count it. I can't count it anymore, and it's like it makes me want to cry now. It's and people that I loved, you know, um, and cherished, and I, so I kind of I feel that pain. Maybe not the same, but I feel it. 
I can relate to everybody up here. You know, I was incarcerated. I was, you know, I was banned from my society. My community hated me, but I jumped full first when I got out of prison. Thankfully, to this is my sponsor and my best friend Concepcion, and he's been, he's a pathways guide out of uh, the uh, Barry Turning Point. He's been instrumental in my recovery, and I think it's really important that we support each other, and that's key. And I've been a new friend, and it's a new friend, but I feel like I've known uh, Liz for 10 years. It's just a strange connection that we have and we share. Um, so it's like these people are all up here, but anybody who's an addict in recovery and those that aren't, we kind of connect, you know. We somehow are all linked, and I just thank you. And Hungry Heart, Coming Home, I love it. <laughs> you did a great job. Thank you. you Thank great you so work, much. All of you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Other questions, comments? Hi, uh, I'm Concepcion. Uh, yeah, you already introduced me. Uh, but um, yeah, I just I, again, I just wanted to commend you guys, and I I also think that that um, it's just uh, it just seems like an evolution of um, of our ability to. Uh, to, to reach others by using social media and podcasts. Um, so I just think it's brilliant that we're finally, that we've entered that stratosphere of communication just because, you know, that, that could be one of our best forms of outreach. Um, you know, we have to think of as many as we can and be as creative as we can in, um, you know, letting our communities know what's going on in the communities and, and, uh, um, that's why I respect all the work that, that you do. Um, uh, I just think that, um, no, it's a positive thing. It can only, I can only see it getting better from here and ex- expanding and just getting more creative juices flowing. Um, it's just a very good energy and it just makes me hopeful for people in recovery all around. So that's all I got. Thanks. Oh, we got a couple more questions here. Hi, my name is Paulette, Um, and something you said, young man, sitting in the middle with a blue shirt. Mike. Mike, I'm sorry. It's okay. You said something that resonated with me, and that was, I just wanted to get the words right. It chokes me up because we all want to get the words right. Whether it's through our storytelling or holding a mic right here, we all want to get the we want to get the words right. Um, I'm one of the ones who didn't listen to all of the, the entire podcast, but I listened to you and the loss of your son, Tyler. I have a son who is in recovery, um, and it was a long six years. Um, and and I, I just I listened to your your piece, and I and I remember sending you, wanted to send you this 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 hug. This hug through, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The biosphere. The biosphere. Thanks, Al. You can give her a hug before she I leaves I want tonight. to do that. It was everything <laughs> I could do to hold myself back and not run up there and hug you right now. So thank you for allowing them to get the words right and for the opportunity for us to listen to your words. Because since my son was struggling with this, I've been wanting to shout from the rooftops that, you know, I'm the face of addiction. 
my son had every opportunity and he and and he almost didn't make it so thank you for for this forum for the for the opportunity to listen and to share your stories and i and i I want to be a part of this. I've been looking, and I just feel like I landed, like you, in the right place. So thank you. You're more than welcome. You're welcome. Could I just add um, um, one, of the, one of the most powerful things? When Tyler was in school, it was us against the school. They were all bad. I hated that school. I hated the teachers. I hated their policies and procedures. I hated it all. But after he got out of school, I was able to stop and think there were some good teachers in there. You know, he he had a couple of good teachers. You know, one of them, uh, we were in one of the meetings. um, Tyler was on an IEP, and he was supposed to have um, a one-on-one in his core classes. And he wasn't getting it. Um, and that that's when the time frame where I was finally snapping. Um, and I said, you know, why isn't he getting his one-on-one? And I was told, because we can't afford it. <laughs> and I snapped. And I said, I don't fucking care if you can afford it. The law says he's going to have a one-on-one and you're going to do it. Or the next fucking time you see me, I'm going to have a lawyer. You know, and on the way out of that meeting, one of his core teachers followed us and she sped up and came right behind us. And she whispered, you're on to something. Keep at it. But don't tell him I told you. Wow. You know, and, and we heard that after Tyler was out of school, we heard that from another teacher from kindergarten. I was told... Sally, if you knew what they did to Tyler, you would have been kicking some ass in that school. I said, why did you wait until he graduated to tell me this? She says, I would have lost my job. When he was struggling in seventh grade, I started crying at work one day, and one of my coworkers told me, go to Jeff Benet, who is in charge of Amanaki Indian Education. He'll help you out. But don't tell them I told you. <laughs> it was like this recurring theme. People knew in their gut it was wrong. But our policies and our procedures, our systems were so broken, you had to ignore your gut in order to survive. And that's wrong. Um, one of the most powerful things, in the th- same thing with society, I thought it was us against society. And after the movie went out, um, The Hungry Heart, the first showing in St. Albans, afterwards, I had people coming up to me and saying, my God, Sally, if I would have only known, I would have called. You know? So, So it was a little bit late, but I actually started getting support from the community. You know, we weren't the the problem people. We had actual people coming to us and, you know, and, and just really being there. Um, and, and this podcast is the same thing. It's a way to have that voice 
to change your perspective, you know, because life isn't all bad. But sometimes you are in such a rut, you don't see that. Thank you. Somebody else? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a question, VPR and Scott. Um, you've done something really important here, I think, taking an abstract uh, concept that's in the news every day and making it riveting and personal and those of us who've been touched by it in our lives uh, know that it's it's more than just a touch it's a stranglehold and and as we talk about the way it has touched our life i'm i'm always amazed at the veil of shame that that has fallen on it Um, and until we started talking about it we didn't know anybody who had been touched by it you know and then all of a sudden, if you open up, you realize that there's almost no one who hasn't been touched by it. And I just think that I would love VPR to find a way to, you know, not just doing more, but to find a way to keep that message and, and to keep doing what you have done, because uh, I think it's really important. Thank you. Erica? You know, kind of in reaction to what you just said, and also what Concepcion in the front said, I think that the thing I'm always wondering whenever we're working on stories is my, my audience is always my mother, that it's always what, what will make my mother care? My mother's a great lady, you know, but she's got a lot of laundry to do, you know, she's busy. And so it's always, always wondering how, what's the, where's the place that is the universal place that people listen because you're right, people are numb to this. You know, like, oh, my God, really? Do we want to hear that again, that story on Vermont Public Radio? What is the way to keep telling this story? And I don't think we know the answer yet, or we're working on it. Okay, I'm a sap. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> I just have to say thank you to um, all of you that have told your story. Um, I think I've seen a lot of you in passing, um, but the story that I can speak to most, and it might be a little biased, um, is Michael. When I first met him, he would come to the recovery center with his hood up, um, you know, always sat in the corner, really just not confident in himself. And then to come to the tonight where, yes, you're damn right, I had to give you a pep talk to get you through the door, but you walked in here, you walked in here with your head high, and it's just, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And to speak on a point that you had said, I totally missed names, but um, Mark. Mark, you said um, uh, sick people need love, and I don't. I don't think I ever found that until I moved to Vermont and found the recovery community. I remember walking into the door and them asking, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Sierra, I'm an addict. And they go, no, who are you? Um, And just working through the recovery community, I finally feel like I'm getting Sierra back. Um, And every time that I don't think that my life could become more more fuller, um, I just get so emotional. You know, last week I had a moment where Um, It hit me that I'm coming up on three years of recovery next month and to where my mother had just purchased a plot of land because she she thought I was going to die to um, planning our wedding for this year and we're surrounded by our friends in recovery. And I just don't think that I would reach this point um, without this sense of community um, and not being ashamed of my story and of who I am. So I just, you know, I have to thank you guys for keeping it alive. It's something beautiful. Thanks. 
I just wanted to respond to your question about what keeps us listening. Um, April 10th will mark my 34th anniversary of um, being clean and sober. And um, I still, on a regular basis, go to my support group to listen to people tell their stories. I mean, I cannot tell you how many thousands of times I have done that. And I'm a person who is also easily bored. I got a lot of laundry, too. (laughs) And, um, you know, I sort of said to myself, well, what keeps me coming back there? You know, what keeps me wanting to hear those stories over and over and over again? What keeps them meaningful to me? And I think it is because there, in that community, I hear people speaking a level of truth a level of open-heartedness because our lives depend on it. And there's a way of connecting deeply and in such a meaningful way that we we are starved for in our culture where people um, are living so much more on the surface of life so much of the time. And, you know, so any opportunity that you can crack open a heart and um, and share it and let people share it freely, give it, given that safe space to do that, I don't think we can get enough of that. I like what you said about how it changed your perspective when you were writing and, uh, you know, healed you. And, and I was part of the first writing group and that's what I discovered that, that you know, when I'm writing, um, you know, I, I can I can just imagine new things, and, and and you know, I'm not stuck with the old story. I can change it, and once I know I can change it, you know, I can change my life. Hi there, my name's Anna. Um, sort of a continuation of a couple of different people's thoughts. Um, I just had a question. Um, I do think. You know, in my own recovery, I've found such an incredible sense of community. Um, and on that, on the same note that I think almost everybody's spoken on, just this, um, you've just, you find over and over and over again so many people that are affected. Um, but I think that this program has also given a chance for listeners that maybe either don't have that same personal connect- connection or maybe don't recognize it as such um, in their lives at this moment. Um, and your stories affect, you know, are touching them and, and they're listening to them. And I was wondering, um, from that perspective, in terms of, of talking, uh, telling your story to a, to a listener that may not have that same personal connection that maybe everyone in this room has, um, how, how do you shape that story to try to... to, to, to um, allow that person that um, doesn't have that personal touch to hear that as well. Does that make sense, that's that question? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Also, I would just add, um, how do people react? Um, so anybody who wants to talk about that, like how do you on a daily basis, I mean, Mike, you could start by just talking about what you, well, all of you do this. You know, how do you, you know, whether it's through songwriting or working in the Crabbery Center or, you know, going into schools, I mean, how or just meeting somebody on the street corner, just a little bit about what that relationship is like. Anybody, any thoughts? Um, well, trying to get pe- trying to find out what people like need or try to relate or make, because maybe you don't always relate to them. 
is the best tool of recovery coaching is listening, you know, and trying to get people, you know, that's why we go through um, and learn how to do open-ended questions and things like that, just so people can speak without even thinking about it, you know, and and just by listening, then maybe I might get something out of what they're saying to, you know, to be there to support them, you know, I guess. Yeah, I remember, Mike, I don't, I don't think it made it into the final... Um into the final podcast, Mike, but um, you're telling me about, you know, I want to tell my story because of how valuable other people's stories have been to me, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think it really is, like, I, it, in doing the whole Reddish Recovery and doing this podcast and everything, like, I always tell people, it, it's 20, t- it, it, 20 times better for me than it has to have been for anyone else who's participated because it's completely changed my life to hear all these stories and to meet all these people and to learn about them in a real way. I mean, I, I can't thank enough every single person who's participated in our project over the last four years. I mean, it's been really amazing, and it, it is true. Like, it's, sometimes it's not about telling your story. It's about listening. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to just say that in my experience, sometimes I found that to go really general, that when you talk about grief, People know what you're talking about when you talk about loss, when you talk about pain, you talk about joy. Sometimes the recovery thing can actually um, be a barrier for intimacy if it comes on like a little bit too strong, too fast. Because now we're talking about me, you know, and my and my recovery, right? But we we, we want to talk about us and what we're feeling, and that's what's so rich. And and I think that's what people thrive on in, in different meetings and, and support groups. That So I have to be careful. So I'm not out there sort of saying I'm recovery. I think everybody's in recovery, if, to be brutally honest, um, <laughs> just from different things, you know. So the idea of connecting and saying, you know, yeah, we're the same. We, we hurt, we laugh, we cry, you know. That, so go general on the story. And then you can bring in... So, some details are not. I also think that in general, anybody who has struggled with addiction or knows somebody with addiction has spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to explain it in a way that makes sense to other people because you so desperately want other people to understand. And sometimes it's your family and sometimes it's complete strangers. And it's just a matter of I th- I think like Mark said when you speak with emotion you you don't need to understand or relate to the details of my story to relate to the feeling of losing somebody who was too young to be lost to relate to the feeling of being a dis- disappointment to your parent you don't have to have ever touched a drug or alcohol in your life to be able to relate to either of those feelings so I think that all of us had emotions in our story and that really is what made people want to listen I just want to jump in quickly and, and share an anecdote I shared with Abby earlier is that literally, you know, minutes after her episode was broadcast onto my Facebook, someone posted, you know, I've been in recovery from alcohol for a while now, and I've been learning a lot about recovery, but I never understood heroin. I never understood why and how it happened. And now I completely understand it, you know, and that was huge to me. And that's, you know, that was like, yes, we did something right. And this series is going to be great. So, thanks, Abby. Anybody else? Somebody else has a... Hi, my name's Maria. Um, And I want to thank you for sharing your stories because by sharing your stories, you opened up 
the waters of navigation when you have to face it yourself with someone you love. So stories is what connects us. Stories vary from person to person, but the feelings are pretty similar. The grief, the anger, the hurt. And it, by hearing other people's stories really made me educate myself. Obviously, it was you know someone I love, so I pursued it much deeper. But I think having a story, a story told in any form you can, because the way one person tells a story may not be the way I like to listen to it, but maybe the next person will be, and something will resonate with you. And it really, listening to other people's stories in support groups gave me the ability to research, go to seminars, learn about the disease. So storytelling is what keeps us connected. We may not be able to pat someone because I'm a toucher too, and I think touching people is important. But stories touch your heart, touch your spirit. And maybe it sounds really kind of third-worldly here, but I really do think spirits go from person to person, this energy that is exuded. So storytelling, and I remember I listened to one of the podcasts. I just found out about it a week or so ago, and it struck me that it was a whole different way of presenting stuff. It was more in a form of poetry, and I thought, wow, that was pretty awesome. So storytelling is important. And the only other thing I thought about, these are adults or young people writing stories. What about little kids? Are there programs in schools for children who a generation being affected by the disease that I often wonder if that might not be a good pursuit? I'm not saying kindergarten, but, you know, little right, kids. Sure. Um, Actually, it does start in kindergarten. kindergarten. I, I, I know several right. schools that are um, right. they're moving to the trauma-informed care. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're and, right. And I've personally witnessed it, you know, from when Tyler was in kindergarten to when my – my niece and my nephew, my, or my great niece, my great nephew. It, it's amazing the difference. It's like, oh my god, am I in the same school? Like they are doing some awesome things with the kids, you yeah. know. It, and and I'm not sure if it's every school, but but I know our local schools. It's there, and and they are doing some good work. We need voices. So thank you very much. We actually have Jeff back here who runs the writers, uh, Young Writers Project, who works with teenagers, right, um, around their stories. Um, actually, we've published um, a kindergarten class. Each person um, did a sentence. But, well, that's yeah. cool. But anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Uh, first, I want to thank you. Um, this was all hard work, and you took real risk. And it, it's rewarded us. And um, one of the things that you brought up here and that I heard in the, in the podcast, and I've listened to them twice, and you know, I heard things the second time through. I didn't hear the first time, so I encourage people to do it. But um, it's the shame, the judgment in the community, and what a barrier that is. And um, obviously this whole project helps break down that barrier. And it's kind of the, a net effect. But now what? Now what? And I'm just curious whether you guys, having felt it, and many in the room have felt 
this judgment of other people. And yes, informing is really a step one. But what other ideas do you have to break down uh, society's judgment? And even as the doctor referred to, of kind of looking at this disease, this illness, this challenge, and making judgment. And what can be done to break down that judgment? Well, that's a big question. I can address it. I, I have an answer for that. <laughs> okay, I actually good. do. Well, the worst son of a bitch judgmental person I ever met lives in my head. <laughs> and nobody can do a number on me like me. Mm-hmm. So you heal that first, mm-hmm. you know, because you find out that, you know, I found out that not everybody's always thinking about me as much as I think they're thinking about me. <laughs> Yeah, um, I would, you know, like, uh, elaborate on what Thera was saying. I did walk around with my head down a lot because of the, you know, tremendous thing that I, I had done, you know, in in a small community um, such as, you know, Newport, Vermont. But the thing that you kind of realize is that even though I don't feel like it, sometimes you got to, for me, I had to come out of my shell and realize, you know, people do give second chances. You know, even the people that I never would have imagined, you know, coming up to me these days, feeling on a level, I guess I would say, of everybody. And kind of bringing me out thinking, you know, it don't matter whether you're the president, you're a doctor, you're, you know, you're on Social Security because, you know, you have bad legs or something, you know. We're all the same in some aspects, you know, and I don't think I've I ever believed that before, you know. So people need to keep talking about it. Um, the more that people are aware of what's going on and aware of how it affects them and what they can do about it, and that it is a disease and not a choice. Because I love still hearing, I don't believe it's a disease. When people say that to me, I feel like. That's like arguing, I don't believe the earth is flat. We, we know for a fact now, so I don't know how we're still acting like this is a faith issue, but here we are. So the more that we, you know, inform people of how things really are and that people can talk and, and see people who are in recovery and people who are having successful lives and helping other people and go, hey, maybe, maybe this is what it's really about and not what, what's going on in my head, what I keep thinking and judging, that's when we're going to get somewhere. I agree. I think we're already doing what we need to do to get rid of that shame and judgment because we're all sitting in this room right now and we're talking about it. And I think the other big piece of it is, you know, we've all the legislation has kind of started to crack down on the the medical piece of it. But I think mental health is a huge part of it as well. And mental health education, because I know that that was a big part of what led me to being an addict was living in a world that told me until well over 18 that it was less than for me to need medication for anxiety and depression, that it was less than to have trauma that you need help to deal with. And especially right now, I think uh, what the other ladies were talking about, about being in the schools is really important too because schools are seeing such an influx of behavioral issues because of the amount of children that are dealing with trauma because of this epidemic and we have to break the cycle there so that they don't have to sit in these seats someday and continue to talk about this. And I think um, 
the, the powerful thing for me is that I'm speaking my truth. And for the first time in my life, I've been able to speak my truth, you know, and I may not be able to connect to everybody, but it's my truth, you know, so, so to me, that's powerful. And I hear my truth into every one of these stories, you know, every one of them. Um, and, and I think the more that we are all, we all find enough, um, <laughs> probably better, but we're brave enough to come forward and, you know, and be able to speak our truth right from the heart. This is our truth. The more you're able to speak your truth and you're able to speak your truth and you're able to speak your truth, we got to stop living the lies. You know, how many years have we been forced to keep that elephant in the closet? Let's take it out and speak our truth. And I, I think there's a real shift, too, in um, in the kind of uh, public storytelling around um, substance use disorder and recovery now that didn't exist, you know, a while ago. I mean, AA has... It, you know, I hate it when people badmouth AA because if it works for you, it works in such a tremendous way. And I've seen so many incredible success stories, and it's it's really saved so many so many lives. Um, it, but it was you know it was built and at the time for good reason around anonymity. Um, and I think there I think we've discovered that maybe there's a little bit of a negative to anonymity, even though I don't I, I don't want to say it's wrong. If you choose it, it's certainly and, and we always offer the degree of anonymity that any participant in our group wants to have. Um, but I think there's a value to going public. And, you know, every person who goes public, it's like a drop in the bucket. And, and I you know, it really makes me to see people stand up and tell their stories or tell them in a podcast or whatever is so uh, emotionally fulfilling. Um, and I think it's changing our society. I would also say there's a very important quote. I don't know the whole one, but essentially what it is, is the opposite of addiction is connection, which makes so much sense to me because I think when people go into their addiction, they become completely isolated because of all the bad things that they're supposedly doing. I think the more you, you go down that rabbit hole, the more isolated you get and so we need to be in our society very aware of the fact that um, we have to come together around this um, and we have to pull people up together and there has to be wraparound services for people who are coming back into addiction because it's one thing to just, you know, okay, you go into treatment and if you're lucky you go through a good treatment program and if you're lucky you come out and it sticks for a while or for a long time. But when you come out, you need a whole heck of a lot of services when you're out there. You need housing. You need jobs. You need people who will hire you. You need therapists. You need treatment centers. You need, you know, all of these things. You need programs like this that keep people sober. Um, and you need COSAs, you know, uh, for people coming out of prison, circles of support and accountability. So as a society, I feel like we need to be very clear that this is a, not an isolation thing, that this is, a, that this is um, a connection thing. And I think, as you said, I think we live in a world right now that can be seen in many ways as very unconnected even though we're supposed to be all connected through the internet, it's very isolating and unconnected. And when that happens, people, it's, it's easier for people to go down that rabbit hole because you're in your own little world, you know, and you can get dragged down there. Um, 
So I love that quote. Uh, the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And this is what this all is. This is all yeah. connection, you know. Um, Dr. Mashkuri, I think you yeah. had. I, I think one of the biggest or the probably most transformative change that I've seen recently, or and although it's not recent, is the use of re- peer recovery coaches. Um, when we imagined the program we were going to do in the emergency department of starting people on buprenorphine and then getting them into you know, an addiction clinic, um, we didn't have recovery coaches as part of the project. And sort of by luck, it happened that we did. And having watched recovery coaches work, um, it's amazing. I mean, an emergency department can be a really intimidating place, especially when you're not feeling well. Um, you're struggling with addiction and you come in and you're worried about how people are looking at you or thinking about you. Um, and then somebody like Liz walks in and there's this, there's this power, there's this connection that is established immediately. Um, and it's disarming for the person that's suffering. Um, and the more we can emulate these kind of, you know, these experiences and have more recovery coaches in the communities. I mean, we have Liz come in and see people that are not just in the emergency department. We see them see them in the inpatient services, psychiatry everywhere, because there's so many people that, you know, if you dig hard enough, there's, there's addiction there somewhere. And when we started the recovery coaches, I got called down to the human resources office and they said, have you seen the records on these people? (laughs) And I said, well, sort of. And they said, do you think this is a good idea? And I said, I think this is a great idea. I said, I said, this record is what makes, this is the strength there. You know, your weakness is their strength. And that when a recovery coach is in a room and a person is struggling, they get to see what's possible. They get to see what it looks like and, and, and where you can be. And there's no, there's no one else that can do that. And it's just tremendously powerful. And I would really advocate that the more we can support this, um, we need to. Yeah, and I would say uh, to the question of what's the next steps, many, many people had good answers. But going on that, I just – the people who are in recovery – are such incredible resources. They should be running social service organizations. They should be running the Howard Center. They should be recovery coaches. They should be politicians. They should be on the forefront of this movement because they are the people who understand it more than anybody else. And they should be the ones who are out there working with young people who are – or old people who are starting down that road, you know? And so we need to use these people. You know? Thanks. Okay. Hi. <clears throat> my, na- my name is Alex. I'm sort of new to this game with a child just entering into this fray. Um, and I'm struck by this conversation. I probably should have spoken up maybe five minutes ago because I wouldn't sound so sort of yesterday with this comment. But this sounds to me like conversations I used to have when I worked with the disability community in the 90s where – there was this struggle for legitimacy and ownership of a sort of territory that was very important um, and very legitimate. And in many, with much of the same language that I'm hearing this evening around this is us, we are, we are, in the words of the disability community, we are all temporarily enabled. 
And whether our disability comes with age, as mine is happening, I'm almost completely deaf now, um, or injury or some other thing. And speaking of next steps and drawing on the resources and drawing on the the talents of people who are new to the to the player. This was all happening in the 90s in the disability community as they were struggling to find an odd thing to say, struggling to find their feet. Um, and the political will to, to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act, you may find that the Americans with Disabilities Act was maybe successful, maybe not, maybe nobody cares anymore. But it did have a profound impact over time on our architecture, on the way we think about our public spaces. And it, it perhaps there's a lesson in there for the recovery community to think about, you know, what the disability community has achieved, what they have not achieved, what you could, what strengths you could draw from them. Um, because like, like you, they are also us. Um, and I have a feeling that quite a few of them are also both of us. So... That's my only comment, and I feel like I made it five minutes too late. Oh, that was great. Great idea. Maybe last last comment. Perfect. (laughs) Take us out. Um, So first of all, I'm also a sap, so forgive me if I choke up while I ask this question. But um, I've heard multiple times tonight that recovery is a two-way street, but so is communication. And I really wanted to know from the experience of someone who hasn't been, who has, doesn't have a personal experience with addiction, um, but has loved ones that I've lost, loved ones that I have now who are <coughs> suffering. What can we do? What what is going to get through to someone who is an active addict? who doesn't really want to come out of it? Like what, is it just persistence? Is it, is it a specific type of conversation that we need to have? Is it a a specific word that needs to be said? I just kind of wanted to know from everybody's experience. For all of you that are wondering why I'm laughing at him, this is my boyfriend, so I'm allowed to. (laughs) That's a great question. So, so how, how do people help, people they know who are struggling with addiction? What what do they need to know from you guys? Let's it's a just, great question, yeah. and I get it all the time since getting clean. Um, from people who have, you know, kids that I used to use with who now, you know, there's not a formula, unfortunately. I wish there was. I wish I could just be like, boom, there you go. You got it. Make it happen. does not work that way. The stars have to be fucking aligned, and you can't align them. What you can do is love them and be there for them and draw those boundaries and establish them and keep them. It's really hard because you want to help, but helping and enabling can sometimes – that line gets a little blurred. So interventions are bullshit. That quote you were looking for, it's the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. And in that same – TED Talk that produced that quote, the guy explains why interventions don't work. And they don't work because you're basically threatening to remove that connection if you don't do this thing that you really can't do right now anyway. Um, It's not that people don't want help. It's it's so hard to to get it when you want it, you know? And that's why this uh, recovery coach um, ED program is, is so exciting and things like that starting to happen are so exciting because they can make that link. But you guys can't. Um, my, my parents, all the people in my life that love me couldn't trust me if they 
had a wand, they would have waved it a million times, just like I'm sure all the people here as loved ones would have. But it just doesn't work that way. It's a lot of work, and that work has to be done by the addict. And all you can really do is be a cheerleader. Sally, do you want to add something, being a parent? <laughs> um, yeah, it has to be their choice. And as you said, right. Right, and you know, there's just it's it's so complicated. If there was an easy answer, addiction would be annihilated. Yeah. You know, um, one of the best things that we could do um, when Tyler went into recovery the first time, um, he had some counseling, and we did some family counseling, and and Tyler actually taught us how to communicate. Um, and when things just, for whatever reason, just weren't quite feeling right, he's like, okay, family meeting, let's go, all of you, over here. You know, and he taught us that, and then we were able to pick that up, you know. So when he went into relapse, it would be like, okay, family meeting, you know. Um, in communicating, is it's an art, you know, like, and and as standing in front of somebody that you love, it is so hard to understand, to, yeah, yeah, to, to understand where he's coming from without telling them, oh, you need to do this and this and this and this, you know, it, it was just, it was rough. It was, I don't even really know the answer Tyler taught us. Well, one of the quotes, I think it's in the podcast, I don't remember, uh, that I love of yours, which is, uh, I looked at Tyler and I said, I love you, Tyler, but I hate your addiction. I think that's a really powerful thing for people to remember because the addiction is maddening and crazy and irrational and painful and sometimes you make a dent and sometimes you don't. And, you know, what can happen is that you can start, you know, it's really easy to start hating your kid or hating, you know, just like I can't handle this. And I think some of it is you have to. And, 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 and so separating that somehow, I think what what I got from that quote, Sally, was that that helped you in some way. Yes. You were able to to still love your kid and yeah. and also realize that this addiction was overwhelming to him. Um, as well as to us, you know, and, yeah. and I think that was it. I, I don't think we even really understood that he didn't want to be an addict. You know, it, it destroyed his life. He just he just didn't know what to do to to stop it. Um, kind of going off your point, best too. That saying that I think in and of itself is very important because a lot of us think we're hiding in plain sight. And we think nobody knows. We think we are so good at hiding this and keeping everything under control. And we have no idea that every time we leave our house, everybody is looking at us and knows exactly what is going on. And we need somebody who we love to look at us and be like, I see what's going on. And to set those boundaries that Liz talked about, because I can't imagine where I would be if somebody had looked at me early on and been like, I understand what's going on here and I see you. 
tell me what you need, but this is what's not going to happen. Mm. <laughs> You're like, what? I can't have things? I wanted to uh, mention that if you, um, from the perspective of a non-addictive person, if there is actually such a thing, um, if you love somebody with this disease, you might find, I've, I've noticed with many, many people, they become addicted to the addict. They go up and down and up and down and all around with the addict. And if you ask them how, they, how, how are you doing today, they'll tell you how the addict's doing today. You know, And they might not even be aware of it. And the drug addict is pretty aware of it because the consequences are so um, in your face. It's hard to, to not be aware of drug addiction. It's really hard to become aware of other addictions and obsessions with trying to fix people to make them into what I want them to be. I haven't had any success at that at all. <laughs> if I do figure that out, you will see me on Oprah, and I will be rich and famous. Then you can definitely get that hair done. You know, I just say do, do your own work, and it's really, really hard, you know, and because the feelings are so intense, you know, I, I did the work, and it still it isn't like the results just come along. I have to treat my trauma every day. You know, and if I didn't have trauma before I was a parent of kids with addiction, which I did, I certainly would, you know. Like the change that happens to the loved ones um, of an addict or an alcoholic are so clear because even when you get clean, it happens all over again. It's just as drastic because they had to adapt to you in this new role and now you're switching again and they act out just as much in, even though this is positive, you know. It's it's very um, it's a very invasive disease. <laughs> it doesn't just affect the addict at all, and how it affects everybody else affects us, you know, even more. Oh, great, you know, everybody's mad at me. I better go get high over that. And then when you get clean, it's oh man, I can't even deal with not getting high right now, and everybody's freaking out, and I don't know what to do. Oh, <laughs> like it's it's all really overwhelming, but it's it's totally worth the work, and it's totally worth. You know, sticking around because watching that change in somebody else is super exciting and awesome. Like seeing somebody realize that life is totally worth living and being present for and being excited about it. I feel like a little kid every day. I really do. Like everything's like, holy crap, that's brand new to me. I've probably done it 20 million times, but I don't remember. So it's really exciting. You know, (laughs) I'm 33. I just got my license, just got a car for the first time. I feel like a 16 year old. That's freaking awesome. You know, I'm aging like Benjamin Button over here. That's (laughs) good news. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I would just say, you know, get, get support. Um, we also have people who come to our Writers for Recovery workshops that are parents, and we've had parents and kids come together and write, which has been really great. Been awesome, uh, yeah. All right, so anything else, Gary? You want to say we're gonna ha- we're gonna end with our friend uh, Mark. Mark singing a song for us. Um, so, anything else you want to say, or Angela? I just want to say thanks to everyone yeah. who came tonight and everyone who listened to the podcast, and thanks to VPR for letting us and make this happen because it was really great thank you so much Angela yeah and do all those things you're supposed to do like retweet it and resend it and put it on your Facebook and tell your grandmother and grandparents and all yeah all you folks if you listen to it and you liked it share it because that's the best way to get it out there there's a light that shines for me out on 
whispered secrets in the dark and I was blinded by her spark I seen comets in the night but this one boy she's a meteorite burning through the atmosphere the choking smoke and the stinking beer tell her She's a shooting star When she shows you Exactly where you are In hillbilly town on a Saturday night She looks a little softer in the neon light no one here's gonna bring her no harm She numbs them all out through a hole in her arm Maybe she'll smile and take you back Out behind the railroad track Where she sleeps all day Cause the nights are long And her train of pain keeps her rolling on Tell her She's a shooting star And she shows you exactly where you are. Shooting stars don't last that long. When the light hits you, they're already gone. But light lasts for eternity. It's just that it ain't so easy to see. So search the heavens. With your eyes If love finds you It never dies Even in this atmosphere Of the choking smoke And the stinking beer Tell her She's a shooting star When she shows you Exactly where you are She's a shooting star When she shows you Exactly where you are Thank you, everybody, for coming, and thank these people for telling their brave stories. Thanks for listening to this special episode of My Heart Still Beats, a project of Writers for Recovery and Vermont Public Radio, made possible with support from the VPR Innovation Fund. The series sponsor is SB Science. My Heart Still Beats was produced by Bess O'Brien and Gary Miller, with editing from Erica Heilman and music by Brian Clark. This VPR event at Turning Point Center of Burlington was produced by Ty Robertson, Michelle Owens, Anna St. Marie, and me, Angela Evansy, with engineering by Peter Angish. Special thanks to Sarah Glasgow.